Welcome to the August 5th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we'll start by reviewing an intriguing study that, while not randomized, calls into question whether less intensive induction therapies provide a survival or quality-of-life benefit in older patients with AML. Next, we will review the somewhat surprising findings from human and mouse model studies demonstrating that platelets downregulate T-cell activity during sepsis, a finding that is associated with reduced survival. We will close with a report on a targeted genotyping approach that could reduce diagnostic and treatment delays in patients with primary CNS lymphoma. Our first research article is entitled Multi-Site 11-Year Experience of Less Intensive Versus Intensive Therapies in Acute Myeloid Leukemia. The lead author is Mohamed L. Soror of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. In this report, Soror and colleagues detail results that raise uncertainties as to whether or not older patients with AML obtain a survival or quality-of-life benefit from less intensive induction therapies. Today, many older patients with AML receive less intensive induction based on the assumption that they may not tolerate intensive therapy or may have limited benefit. Often, this decision is based primarily on the patient's age, with those older than 65 years more often receiving less intensive therapy. Performance status is used to some extent in this treatment decision. However, this does not distinguish between functional impairments due to AML versus impairments due to comorbidities according to Soror and co-authors. By contrast, comorbidity indexes may be more accurate predictors of outcome. One such index is the Acute Myeloid Leukemia Composite Model, AML-CM, which incorporates age, comorbidities, and aggressiveness of AML based on cytogenetic and molecular features, which was recently developed by Soror and colleagues. The AML-CM has been shown to outperform age and performance status in predicting early and late mortality among patients with AML. In the current study, Soror and co-investigators hypothesized that older AML patients and or those with higher comorbidity burden, as measured by the AML-CM, would have worse survival and quality of life with intensive compared to non-intensive induction therapy. To test this, they conducted a retrospective study in a multi-institution cohort of AML patients between the ages of 18 to 80 years who were treated with common AML therapies. They then evaluated the same hypothesis in a prospective cohort of more recently treated patients meeting those same inclusion criteria. The retrospective cohort included nearly 1,300 patients treated at six different tertiary centers. The median age of the patients was 60 years. Those who received less intensive therapies were older, had higher comorbidity burdens, and more frequently were higher risk per the 2017 European Leukemia Net, or ELN, risk classification criteria. Those patients receiving less intensive therapies also had higher scores on the AML-CM index. Almost all patients with AML-CM scores of 1 to 3 had received intensive chemotherapy and so were omitted from the analyses. This group included most of the younger patients, unless they had comorbidities. 
Soror and colleagues found that patients with higher AML-CM scores who received less intensive treatment had significantly lower two-year survival rates and higher mortality hazard ratios as compared to those who were treated intensively. This held true for patients with AML-CM scores of 4 to 6, 7 to 9, or of 10 or above, even when the analyses were restricted to those patients 65 years or older or patients between 70 to 79 years of age. Results were independent of receiving an allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. Next, investigators conducted a prospective observational clinical trial, which included nearly 700 patients, treated at 13 different centers between July 2013 and December 2017. Similar to the retrospective cohort, patients receiving less intensive therapy tended to be older, had more comorbidities, and were higher risk by ELN criteria. There were generally no major differences in quality of life or geriatric assessment measures. Similar to the retrospective study, survival rates were lower and mortality hazard ratios were higher for patients receiving less intensive therapies. This finding was consistent regardless of AML-CM risk group. However, there were no statistically significant differences in mortality for less versus more intensive therapy after adjusting for specific age cutoffs, physician-assigned performance status, and physician perception of chances of cure. Of note, Patients who received less intensive therapies spent significantly less time in the hospital, however. Hospital stays were a median of 16.6 days within the first three months of therapy, as compared to a median of 37.4 days for patients receiving more intensive therapies. The authors conclude that their studies question the survival or quality of life benefits, except for length of hospital stay, from less intensive therapies in patients with AML, including older patients or with a high comorbidity burden. They also note that a randomized clinical trial is greatly needed in older, medically infirm AML patients to systematically test the benefits of less intensive, intensive, or a combination of both therapies. In a commentary on this study that also appears in Blood, Andrew Wei of the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, said these study findings provide an important perspective on the impact of intensive chemotherapy in older patients. Patients receiving intensive chemotherapy may have superior outcomes as compared to those receiving less intensive chemotherapy, though that may be less likely for patients 70 years of age or older, Wei said in the editorial. Moreover, the negative impact of intensive chemotherapy on quality of life may not be as substantial as many perceive it to be, he added. The main limitation of the study was the lack of randomization and the relatively small proportion of patients with advanced age who actually received intensive chemotherapy. Unfortunately, the choice of more or less intensive therapy remains complex and dependent on many factors, Wei said. No single tool for making this assessment is perfect. Several studies comparing intensive therapy to hypomethylating agents are also pending, and results are not yet published. In addition, now that venetoclax plus azacitidine has been shown to improve remission rates and survival, the discussion of intensive versus non-intensive therapy likely needs to be reevaluated in that context. Data from randomized controlled trials, when available, will begin to address some of the ongoing uncertainty about selection of less or more intensive induction therapy for specific patients with AML. Next, let's turn to a research article entitled 
Platelet MHC Class 1 mediates CD8-positive T-cell suppression during sepsis. The lead author is Li Gua of the University of Utah Molecular Medicine Program in Salt Lake City. The studies described in this paper demonstrate that during sepsis, platelets internalize and present exogenous antigens through major histocompatibility complex class 1, MHC1. The increased MHC1 on platelets during sepsis in turn reduced the number and function of antigen-specific T-cells. Sepsis is a systemic inflammatory response to invading infectious pathogens and is a major cause of death in critically ill patients. It is associated with reduced numbers and impaired functional response of CD8-positive T-cells. This leads to an increased risk of secondary infections and adverse outcomes. Platelets are dynamic effector cells that orchestrate immune and inflammatory host responses, including the capacity to engage T-cells. For example, in malaria, platelets activated in vitro stimulate antigen-specific CD8-positive T-cells. Similar findings have been shown in studies of viral hepatitis, HIV, and SARS-CoV-2 infection. It is already known that platelets play important roles in sepsis, and they have been shown to directly interact with other innate and adaptive immune cells, including monocytes and neutrophils, during sepsis. By contrast, in the setting of bacterial sepsis, there is very little research exploring antigen-specific interactions between platelets and CD8-positive T-cells. Antigen-specific CD8-positive T-cell responses depend on MHC1 molecules, which are found on the surface of all nucleated cells and on platelets. Compared to MHC1 on nucleated cells, MHC1 on platelets is associated with some unique features. For example, while organ transplantation can cause rejection, transfusions of platelets are well tolerated because platelet MHC1 induces CD8-positive T-cell tolerance and suppression, not activation. However, it has remained unclear whether platelet MHC1 influences CD8-positive T-cell response during sepsis. In their studies, Gua and co-authors found that exogenous antigens are actively internalized and processed by both mouse and human platelets, generating peptides that are loaded onto MHC1. Furthermore, they found that expression of platelet MHC1 and antigen cross-presentation by platelet MHC1 were significantly upregulated in a murine sepsis model and in clinical studies of sepsis patients. This resulted in upregulated antigen-specific interactions between platelets and CD8-positive T-cells. The investigators observed reduced proliferation of antigen-specific CD8-positive T-cells in vitro, as well as decreased numbers of CD8-positive T-cells, impaired antigen-specific CD8-positive T-cell responses, and reduced production of interferon gamma in vivo. Moreover, they found that, in platelet MHC1-deficient transgenic mice, the loss of platelet MHC1 resulted in reduced suppression of CD8-positive T-cell number and function, and a trend toward decreased sepsis-related mortality. The platelet-mediated downregulation of CD8-positive T-cell responses in these studies is surprising, according to Ulrike Seifert and Andreas Greinacker of the University of Greifswald in Germany, in a commentary that also appears in Blood. That's because the findings contrast with those of previous experimental studies of other disease states, including cerebral malaria and lymphocytic choriomeningitis virus. In those studies, platelets actually induced increases in CD8-positive T lymphocyte numbers and cytokine release. 
This raises the possibility that the role of platelets differs depending on whether the pathogen is a bacterium, a virus, or a parasite, the authors said in their commentary. In human sepsis, reduced levels of T lymphocytes have been observed. This has been attributed to chronic antigen stimulation, leading to T lymphocyte exhaustion. Seifert and Greinacher said the current study by Gua and co-authors suggests that platelet MHC1 peptide presentation may contribute to this. Interestingly, platelets also express T-lymphocyte co-stimulation molecules, including CD86, enabling platelets to activate naive T-lymphocytes. Further study may be warranted to see whether co-stimulatory molecule expression on platelets changes during sepsis and whether this affects their MHC1 antigen presentation. Overall, this research paper provides new insights on how increased MHC1 on platelets during sepsis suppresses CD8-positive T-cell number, proliferation, and functional responses. The data point to a previously unknown mechanism by which upregulation of platelet MHC1 during sepsis reduces T-cell responses and worsens outcomes. Further insights could help researchers better understand the relationship between platelet MHC1 and T-cell activity. That may lead to the identification of therapeutic targets that modulate the immune response in sepsis. The final article is entitled, A Rapid Genotyping Panel for Detection of Primary Central Nervous System Lymphoma. The first author of this article is Mihir Gupta, who is affiliated with the Departments of Neurosurgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and the University of California, San Diego, with the study led by Ganesh Shankar at MGH. In this research article, Gupta and co-authors describe a rapid genotyping assay that they say may resolve treatment delays and avoid neurosurgical biopsy if incorporated into the workup of primary CNS lymphoma. Primary CNS lymphoma, or PCNSL, is an aggressive extranodal non-Hodgkin lymphoma that is rapidly lethal if untreated, with an overall survival of less than two months, while shorter time to diagnosis correlates with improved prognosis in patients with PCNSL, the diagnosis of this disease is usually challenging. The radiographic appearance of PCNSL is similar to that of many brain malignancies, including glioma, leptomeningeal carcinomatosis, and cancer metastases. When PCNSL is suspected, nonspecific radiographic or cerebrospinal fluid findings may contribute to delays in diagnosis and treatment. The diagnostic workup of suspected PCNSL frequently involves analysis of CSF by cytopathology and flow cytometry. However, flow cytometry may be positive due to leptomeningeal spread from other neoplasms. This diagnostic dilemma also complicates neurosurgical decision-making. In hematologic malignancies, only a diagnostic biopsy is needed, while the initial diagnostic procedure for gliomas typically aims for maximal resection of the tumor. MyD88 L265P is a somatic mutation present in up to 70% of PCNSL, 24% to 73% of systemic diffuse large B-cell lymphomas, and 87% of patients with Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. This mutation can be detected in DNA from CSF in primary CNS lymphoma patients by digital droplet polymerase chain reaction which raises the possibility that its detection may yield important diagnostic information. However, this approach is limited by the inability to perform the test for more than one or two genes simultaneously.
In the present research article, Gupta and co-authors describe a rapid multiplexed genotyping assay, including MID-D88, L265P, TERT promoter, IDH1 and 2, H3F3A, and BRAF, to facilitate the diagnosis of primary CNS lymphoma from CSF and to detect other neoplasms in the differential diagnosis. In a total of 86 archived clinical specimens, including 34 MID-D88 L265P mutant tumors, the targeted genotyping assay was able to accurately detect hematologic malignancies, including PCNSL with 57.6% sensitivity and 100% specificity. Other hematologic malignancies identified included Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, chronic myeloid leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, and secondary CNS lymphoma. Investigators call their assay TET-RS, which stands for Targeted Rapid Sequencing. They say TET-RS was optimized to report results from CSF and plasma specimens within 80 minutes or less. In 132 specimens representing 117 patients, TET-RS was able to detect hallmark mutations associated with malignancies with a sensitivity of 65.8% and a specificity of 100%, according to the report. Overall, TET-RS is a technically straightforward method for rapidly detecting clinically relevant mutations when primary CNS lymphoma is suspected, according to investigators. Variant alleles can be detected from solid biopsies within 37 minutes and from liquid biopsies within 63 to 80 minutes. The specificity is high, with a threshold sensitivity as low as 0.15 to 1% mutant allele fraction and a reagent cost of less than $9 per specimen. An interesting part of this research paper is that the authors also studied the present-day challenges in diagnosing primary CNS lymphoma that TET-RS may help improve. They found that among 159 consecutive patients with confirmed PCNSL diagnosed between 2010 and 2019, the median time to secure the diagnosis was 10 days and up to 617 days in one case. Although histopathology confirmed PCNSL in 142 out of 152 biopsies, CSF analyses were diagnostic in only 15 out of 113 samplings. Taken together, the findings presented in the research article by Gupta and colleagues suggest that this targeted genotyping approach offers a rapid, scalable adjunct approach that may help reduce diagnostic and treatment delays in primary CNS lymphoma. By optimally selecting patients for invasive procedures, delivery of adjuvant radiation or chemotherapy could be accelerated, since delays due to diagnostic ambiguity or surgical recovery could be avoided. Targeted genotyping may also inform cost-effective selection of molecular assays, next-generation sequencing panels, or enrollment in clinical trials. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.